The text we're going to be looking at is Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. So let's go ahead and open there, Mark chapter 8. I'm going to start in verse 27 and read through 38. Just to give us a little bit of context. I think it's very important for us. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? And forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Amen. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his help. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the life of Christ on our behalf. Lord, that he gave his own life that undeserving sinners might live. Lord, and I thank you for his ministry in which he teaches us here how we might save our lives. Lord, I pray that this message would impact every one of us. Lord, that its impact would be deep and profound. Lord, I pray for the lost among us that they would come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. And I pray for us as believers, Lord, that we would be encouraged to run with all of our might for Christ. Lord, we love you. Thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. Well, brethren, What is more valuable than your soul? Anything. I mean, think of the most valuable possession you own. Many of us may be a house, a car, even relationships. I mean, our spouses, our children, these are precious and valuable things. But what is more valuable than the soul? I mean, if you had to trade your soul for something, is there something you would give in exchange No, brethren, all these things, even if you have a very nice house, a very nice car, tons of possessions, it's all dependent that you're alive to enjoy them. 
right? We need to be alive if we're going to enjoy our possessions. And yet here, this question is obvious to Christ. It should be obvious to us that nothing in the world is worth having more than our life or our soul. And Jesus is appealing to every person's desire to preserve their life in this text, to preserve their soul. And he's giving instruction to us of how we might do that. Jesus wants us to preserve our soul. And now, this is for you, for me, this is for Christians, for non-Christians. You've got to perk up and pay attention. This is hard teaching by Christ, as was many of his teachings. And yet we see that for Christians, as Peter is going to be very important to us to understand, the way to continue to pursue this self-denial and cross-bearing, as well as for the non-Christian who, who really has no desire to pursue Christ, Jesus gives you some motivation. And so that's exactly what I pray. I mean, I pray that those who are not taking following Jesus seriously would, uh, would see that this is a, a gravely serious matter. We need to take this seriously, brother. And Christians as well, not to get comfortable, brethren. Comfortable Christianity really is deadly. It's deadly. I pray this would show us how to give up, deny ourselves, give up foolish pursuits, and follow Jesus. So now let's begin. Verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples. So we see the audience who Christ is speaking to. He's speaking to the crowd who we know is full of unbelievers, right? Even especially in the book of John, there was a lot of people that followed Jesus around. Thousands of people just because they got benefits from Christ. I mean, he was healing people left and right. You had an infirmity in those days. It was a lifelong sentence. Yet, they hear of a man now who's healing people, and of course they're going to follow him. They want to be healed, or they want to be fed, like when Jesus fed the, the 5,000 and the 4,000, remember? They got food to fill their bellies, and they followed Christ. And we know that Christ was uh, not happy. He did not commend that type of following from the crowd. And yet there were lots of lost people that followed him. There were people that, they did not like his message. In fact, in the book of John as well, after Jesus said some hard things, it says a lot of those his disciples there, those people in the crowd, left him from that day on and ceased to follow him. And they could not accept his teaching. And Jesus is going to teach something very similar here. And then he calls his disciples as well as the crowd and speaks to his disciples the same message he gives to the crowd. He doesn't say one thing to his disciples like, ah, oh, don't worry, guys. I mean, you guys are in. Like, this is, but this is okay. You know, this teaching, you might want to pay attention, but it's not necessary because, you know, you're already believers. And no, the call is universally the same to the lost, to the saved, for Christ's message to us. If anyone would come after me, anyone, this is anybody. This is a radically countercultural message that we need to hear and examine our lives by. For the Christian, this will keep us on track and give us motivation as well as give desire 
to the lost person who knows nothing of this sort of following of Christ. And so the main point Jesus is making is right here in the first verse, in 34. If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now Jesus does not make this teaching optional. He never makes obedience optional to us. He wants us to guarantee the state of our souls. So so this, this type of following, coming after Christ, is not optional. It's life and death decision. This is the difference between heaven and hell for us. This is the difference between losing your soul and saving your soul. If you do not deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Christ, eternity is at stake. And don't think, brethren, it's for like the greatest Christians, you know, these like super select apostle type, Paul type, Charles Spurgeon type. This is for everyone. Remember, if anyone would come after me, basic Christianity right here. This is Christianity 101. Now, I know what you may be thinking. This, I mean, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. It sounds like works. I mean, I have to deny myself and take up, I thought this was a faith only kind of religion. This is like, I, I believe in Jesus and I'm good, right? Well, brethren, that is not the case. What we do not want to do in texts like these, and Christ speaks like this often, you do not want to come to a text like this and overlay this doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone, which which is a good doctrine, right? It, It is the case. But you don't want to come to this and say, well, I'm saved, therefore obedience kind of is optional. You know, whether I obey or not doesn't really matter in the end. That's not how grace works. That's not how saving faith works. It's wrong and unbiblical to come to that sort of conclusion with texts like these. And Jesus says this a lot. I mean, listen, any one of you, Luke 14.33, don't turn there. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be Christ's disciple. Brethren, that's a hard saying. It really is. He's asking you to to renounce everything. And if you don't, you're not worthy to be Christ's disciple. And unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that kind of sounds like sanctification. If I'm not... So if I don't have some sort of work here, I mean... What is Jesus teaching us? He is not teaching us a different way of salvation. Namely, you have to, before you, before you put your faith in me, you know, you got to deny yourself, become like a child, become morally acceptable, and then you can come. Right? That's not what he's doing. He's describing to us the nature of saving faith. This is what saving faith looks like, even at the most baby level of saving faith, the brand new believer. This is characteristic of every single Christian. They deny themselves, 
They take up their cross and they are following Jesus Christ. This is precisely how faith, true, genuine faith, works itself out. So now you might say, yes, obedience to this passage is absolutely required to be saved. But it's because obedience to this is a necessary, inevitable fruit of saving faith. And does Jesus expect us to be perfect? I mean, does he want us to look at this and say, I have to perfectly deny myself, perfectly take up my cross perfectly, or I can never have assurance of my salvation? No, brethren, that's not the case. And 1 John makes this clear for us. But it is the overall direction of our lives as Christians. It is where, where our aim is and our focus. This kind of life characterizes us from the moment of conversion to the end. And it does grow, brethren. It does grow. And we're going to look at that. These, both of these aspects of these first two commands, denying ourselves and taking up our cross, have an initial starting place, which we'll look at. But they also have this reality that it continues and it grows. You, you mature in this kind of thing. So if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. Now, the, the construction of this whole passage is important to us. And I want to show you something. I, I look at it as two commands given by Jesus to show us how we are to follow him. The kind of following that's acceptable to Jesus. Namely, denying yourself and taking up your cross. So you see... If anyone would come after me. Now that, that word to come is the same exact word in the original as it is in the end. And follow me after taking up your cross. So he's saying if anybody would follow after me, follow me. Now the, the, the denying yourself and taking up your cross sandwiched in the middle kind of puts the emphasis on the following Jesus. This is how you, if anybody's going to follow me or wants to be my disciple, I want you to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, be my disciple. And that's how it is. And then he gives us four motivations or incentives. And then you see verse 35, 36, 37, 38, all begin with the word for, or you could say because. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? 37, for what can a man give in return for his soul? And 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words. Brethren, you see how it's set up here. Jesus gives us a command to do. And then he gives us incentives and motivation to do it. And this is important to know. Because we have to know what type of following Christ is acceptable to him. Which kind of following will guarantee the state of our souls. Like we were saying in the beginning, the crowds that just sort of followed around for the benefits were not Christians. They, they did not get saved in the end if they did not come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And there's lots of people today, brethren, today, that do this exact same thing. Just coming to services does nothing for you. Does absolutely nothing. Hanging out with Christians gives you no merit in Christ's eyes. Reading 
Even reading your Bible, brother, because a lot of people think, hey, it makes me feel good. You know, I feel like I'm accomplishing something. It's, it does nothing for you. It does nothing for you. This is not the type of coming after Jesus wants from us. We do not follow Jesus as genuine Christians for the benefits, merely for the benefits. This should be an alarm to you if that is the case. Following him, a true following him, is to do what he says and do what he does with a heart set on the same things as his is set on, namely glory to God. It's walking in the same manner of life, with the same attitude, the same dependency on God, the same treasuring of God that Jesus walked with when he was on this earth. And it's important at this point to notice something. Jesus is not asking us to do something that he did not do. He is asking us to be exactly like he is on this world. He's commanding us to do the same things He did. He denied Himself for you, for me. And He quite literally took up His cross to die on for us. And now Jesus is saying, you want to be my disciple? This is the kind of life we live. This is where I'm going, and this is where you're going. You're following after me. So, brethren, let's look at the first command to following Christ. Let him deny himself. Not to deny yourself. We all have ideas of of what this means. And it's one of those things where if you just casually read over it, you don't give it thought, you can easily go down all types of wrong paths here as to what it means to deny myself. But if you word it, either to forget oneself, to renounce oneself, or or to refuse to give yourself something. See, people deny themselves things all the time, but we want to make sure, how can we know how to rightly deny ourselves? So I was saying, there's an immediate and decisive action to this when a person has saving faith in Jesus Christ. And it really is denying yourself. The first step of faith is the first step taken by somebody. It's denying your own righteousness. You are renouncing all hope of you saving yourself. It's complete self-denial. Recognition, if up to me, I am not going to save myself. There is no way. My works, I have nothing to offer Jesus Christ. This is the first immediate foundational type of self-denial that every believer must have. Must. And this is something that stays with you the rest of your Christian life. You don't turn on this. This sort of self-denial, you start thinking you're contributing to works, by works, and there is a reality in which I will be the first to admit I'm guilty of this even as a Christian where we really do think our works commend us to God. Instead of realizing, I'm accepted on the basis of Jesus Christ alone. It is not of me. I cannot bring or offer him anything. This is God honoring self-denial. And yet, 
This sort of self-denial grows as we are Christians. It matures and manifests itself in at least two ways. I tried to think of these umbrella ways here. First, though, I want to talk about what it is not. What, what, what is wrong self-denial here? What kind of self-denial is not okay? And I want to take us to Colossians 2. Uh, verse 20 to 23. You can turn there with me. And we're going to see the Apostle Paul give us a very practical example of this. Colossians 2, starting in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And that's it right there. There's a type of self-denial that has no value in stopping the indulgence of your flesh and of, your, and of sin. And look what he says it is. Submitting to regulations of the world, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, likely food. People were thinking that there's a sort of self-denial, perhaps, if they abstain from food offers to idol, uh, food offered to idols, that would commend them to God. And that's not what it is. It's not we put it in common terms, like minimalism, for example. There are people who think it's fun to try to get by on as little as possible, but it becomes something that enslaves them, right? They, they really think they're better than others because they're minimalistic. And there's no end to this. Dieting is the same way today. People who, who really think you know, following some strict regimen, denying themselves, I don't know, ice cream, somehow commends them to God. Now, I understand if you can't eat ice cream, that's one thing. But, but this type of self-denial really doesn't stop your flesh from indulging in sin. It doesn't. Or like these, these monks that take vows of solitude. I mean, talk about self-denial. They literally cut themselves off from everything and everyone because they think they're somehow holier. They're better. They're, they're more acceptable in the sight of God. And we know, brethren, that is not good. It's absolutely ignoring the rest of the Scriptures. So if there's an emphasis on something that really does not serve the purposes of God in your life and it and it enslaves you, you're, you're kind of bound by it, you need to evaluate that in your life. life don't let life become about denial, self-denial for self-denial's sake. Instead, it has to be self-denial in order to serve the true ultimate goal of glorifying God. So one way true self-denial manifests itself is God-honoring self-denial denies the old man with all its old desires and its sins daily that Christ would be magnified in us. So there is an old man 
the believer has a new nature once they come to faith in Christ. This nature, this old man, needs to be put to death by this new man. There are sins, weights, that are still appealing to us, to our flesh, that must be chopped off, as Christ put it. Chopping off limbs and plucking out eyeballs for the sake that we would become holier, that we would stay away from sins and things that do not uh, serve the purpose of Christ's likeness. The old self also loves the world. It loved the world. It loved the, the comfort of the world. It loved money and toys and hobbies and games, security, human approval. All these things were more important to the old man than Christ is. And you have to ask yourself, brethren, are you in that place? Do you value worldly comforts more than you value Christ? Do you seek human approval more than you seek God's approval? Are your hobbies more important to you than Christ? Is your work more important to you? You name it. We have to deny ourselves everything that gets in the way of following Christ with all of our hearts. And we see, we know this is an ongoing thing, brothers. This is an ongoing thing. You're not going to, at the moment of faith in Christ, be perfect. And you're not going to get perfect eventually until you're in heaven. But there is a real ongoing sanctification and growth in this to which you are putting sin to death daily. Daily putting it to death. And this, the, the second kind of God-honoring self-denial imitates Christ in that it counts others more significant than ourselves. We know this from Philippians 2. Counting others' sufferings, others' sorrows, their pains, even their joys, brethren, their gain as more important than our own. We not only look to our own interest merely as Christians, we look to the interests of others primarily before we consider ourselves. This is the mark of what Christ did for us, right? Christ's whole mission was singularly focused on saving us. His whole purpose and drive of life, of course, obeying God and glorifying Him with what He did. But the way He glorified God was by totally giving, counting Himself as nothing in order that He might count us as everything to make a way of salvation possible, to leave the glories of heaven, to come down as a baby and a child and then a man who would get crucified eventually. Again, if we take our eyes off of how Christ led by example, we will lose all hope, all motivation to press on. But when we do focus on, on how Christ has done this for us, 
it makes us doing it much easier. We have him to look to. So we must count others more significant than ourselves as part of self-denial that marks the disciple of Christ. This is part of denying yourself in order to follow Jesus. So ask yourself, brother, is this true of you? Right? He's speaking to his disciples as well here. Do we give up our time, our resources, our efforts, our money, abilities, our comforts, our rights, so that somebody else might be benefited by it? Christ did this for us, brethren, and it's the same type of life that we ought to imitate. Now that's denying ourselves. And then he has a second command here, which is to take up your cross. And again, I mean, think about this. I, it's, it's almost progressive, okay? You deny yourself, and then you take up your cross, and then you follow Jesus. Take, taking up your cross. Nobody's going to take up their cross, rather, who doesn't deny themselves. If, if you don't consider self-denial a thing in your life, you're not going to have a cross on your back. So self-denial is the way to taking up the cross. Now, it, there's a common understanding that, that's not right with cross-bearing. And I've heard this, I don't know if I've heard this from anybody here, but I have heard this before, in that every hardship or trial, whatever it is that comes into your life, it's like, oh, this is my cross to bear. And I'm not taking away from the fact that there are trials and sufferings in life. I mean, Christ is calling us to this. But this is not taking up your cross. You have to think about something. When Jesus said this to his disciples, the cross meant one thing. It was execution. They did not have this understanding of a metaphorical cross for a, a trial. The cross was, was death, certain death. And included with that was pain and suffering, shame, humiliation. Again, you, how do we figure out what taking up your cross is? Look at what Christ did in taking up his cross. He took his cross to die on it. And he underwent untold suffering and humiliation as a result of this. So we have to, again, as part of taking up our cross and following Jesus, are we ready? Have we accepted that shame, humiliation, suffering, and possibly death will come? And it's not a, perhaps, maybe, by chance, some may experience. No, brethren, again, everybody will experience this type of shame and suffering and humiliation. And certainly death of the old man, right? To take up your cross means that a person has utterly turned their back on the world. Utterly turned their back on all of the world's pursuits, the comforts, 
the pleasures, and have totally surrendered their lives to King Jesus. We've accepted the call to follow Christ unto death. This is the type of following acceptable to Christ. You don't come halfway. Lord, I'll follow you to this point, and after that, I'm done. I will go only so far. I will give up only so much of my time and energy, but I can't give up more than that. That is dangerous. Dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. You are all in for Christ, or you're not in. Or you're not in, brothers. In short, listen, to sum up denying yourself and taking up your cross, you're not living your life the way you think you want to live it. That's not how a disciple who follows Jesus lives. It's not about me anymore. It's not about you. The whole life, seeking to fulfill your wants and desires and needs and pleasures, and you give no thought to God. You wake up in the morning, what do I feel like doing today? If that's you, brethren, reconsider your life. Jesus is going to give you some powerful motivation to get out of that, to see your need of Him and of living this kind of radical life. Have you been crucified with Christ? Has that old man been crucified up there? Listen, when a person got on the cross, they did it. They lost all their rights. You could throw rocks at them. You could spit on them. You're not going to get in trouble. They have no more possessions. Everything's taken from them. They're going to die. And likewise, when you get on the cross, you know, I, there's a, a preacher I really like to listen to. And he would say a, a lot of people will come to the cross, but who wants to get on the cross? And that's the reality of it. Perhaps many people will look at Christ from a distance and say, wow, I mean, he's got a lot of benefits and offers. And then they say, hey, okay, well, you know, let's, let's follow Christ. And he says, get on the cross with me. No, thank you. I did not realize it was going to require my life. But brethren, it requires your life to be a follower of Jesus. He wants your life. Jesus took his cross outside the city, outside the gate, as Hebrews tells us. He goes up to the mount, the place of death, and dies. And likewise, while the people are in the city, buying and selling and storing up treasures and figuring out what they're going to eat for lunch, Jesus is outside of the gate, giving his life for you that you might have eternal life. And he calls us to follow him there, to leave that life behind and to serve him. And we must count the cost of following Jesus. This is a reality. You have to count the cost in understanding he does require everything from us. And yet, what's amazing, beloved, is he... I love that Jesus does this. He doesn't just call us to do something radically difficult, hard, seemingly impossible, and say, that's just the way it is. He gives powerful motivation and incentive to stir you up to want to do it, to want to put your faith into Christ. 
to see that you need Him. You actually, if you persist in that way, it's not going to be good. He Remember, He loves men. He loves people. And He wants people to be saved. He desires that everyone would come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. And so He gives us powerful motivation. You think about this. So we have in, in verse 35 the first motivation marked by the word for. For whoever would save his life or whoever desires, this word some of your translations might say, desires to save his life for my sake. I'm sorry, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Okay, let's just look at this first part. Now note, it's kind of paradoxical, okay? There's two types of losing and two types of saving. He's using this this double meaning, which should be obvious, but it's worth mentioning. He's saying, whoever would save his life implied is, in this world, will lose it for eternity. Or otherwise, your soul. If you save your life in this world, you lose it in the next. And it's an eternal loss. Yet, whoever loses his life in this world will save it for eternity. And the parallel passage in John 12, 25 proves this for us. Okay, Jesus says there, John records it this way, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Okay, so we see You lose your life in this world, you keep it for eternity. You save it in this world, you lose it for eternity. And we know, people talk like this all the time. We say, I've given my life to be where I'm at today. Or I've given my life to be this good at basketball. I'm not good at basketball. But you know how they talk. these Olympians talk. They give their lives, brethren, for one thing. What do they mean? They have willingly chosen not to partake in things that they might attain their goal that other people can't get to unless they do the same thing, right? This is what Jesus means. There's things you're willingly losing, namely your whole life, in order to save it for eternity. You give up everything in this world if you want the next. So denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus is worth it. Absolutely worth it. Because you gain eternal life with Christ. So the first part, whoever would save his life will lose it. What does it mean to save your life in this world? Like we've been saying, you live your life in this world for yourself. You want, you want the, the comforts of this world. You want the ease, you want the security, you, you like the people, the lost people, you want their approval. Brethren, you want to have a, you know, you do whatever it takes to get the things that you want. That you want. You're just in this world to suck up all of its entertainments, all of its fleeting pleasures, and you give no thought to Christ. Uh, perhaps you think, oh, I should go to church. I mean, that's how I grew up. Oh, I'll go to Sunday service. I'll read my Bible in the morning. 
but the direction of your life is me, 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 me. What do I want? This is the kind of life-saving that the unbeliever lives. They save their life. They get what they want out of this life. They don't hold back any desire from their flesh. And the funny thing is, you eventually lose everything anyways. I mean, you're going to die. And what is all that you've gained? And so he tells us then in the second part, but, but, if you lose your life in this world, and not just any kind of losing, for my sake and the gospel's, then you will save it. And do we need more motivation than this? The, the promise, the reality that's held out for us of eternal life. Who does not want such a thing? Everybody wants it. They just don't want it on Jesus' terms. So what is losing your life for my sake and for the gospel's? Notice that language first. Losing your life sounds a lot like dying, doesn't it? Hence, the referral back to denying yourself and taking up your cross. You're following Jesus primarily, which involves loss of the old nature that didn't want anything to do with Jesus. It's basically the opposite of everything we've been talking about. Instead of living life for yourself, you live it for Christ. For Christ. And it's a purposeful, a, a, a meaningful, a willing type of loss. You willingly choose to follow Christ rather than follow your own desires. So this, this type of losing your life doesn't just hit you all of a sudden and, you know, well, now you're losing your life for Christ. It just pops out of nowhere. It's a, it's a decision you make. You have to willfully choose to follow Christ over these other things that call your attention every single day. It's the type of thing like, okay, any of you that have a spouse, no. It's that type of thing that's, do I want to do what I want to do in this instance and what I think should be done? Or do I want to lose that and allow my spouse to have what they think or what they desire because it brings them joy? This is a small example, but... Okay, another objection. I'm too busy to lose my life. I mean, the number of times I've heard this, I'm too busy. I just don't have opportunity to follow Christ. And it's, okay, again, the reason we're so busy is not because all of a sudden it just hit us one day and we have all these this whole schedule. Of things. We slowly but surely made decisions and made more decisions that made us busier and busier and busier with stuff. And then we start saying, wow, well, to get all of this done, I can only spend five minutes to read my Bible in the morning because I have this, 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 this. Okay, that might work for if you tell me that. But you're going to have to explain that to Christ who's telling you to lose your life. There's not an, ex there's not an excuse except perhaps a rare season, very rare season, in which something may happen that demands more attention. But brethren, the, 
This is the trajectory of your life. Does it look like you're losing your life daily for Christ? The promised reward of having eternal life should drive us to want to do more, to lose our life more for Christ than we already are. Instead of thinking, well, how can I increase my income? And I'm going to take steps to do that. I'm going to put out ads here and do this and do that. Brethren, we ought to be thinking, how can I increase my eternal reward? Is there something in my life I can... I can change something I can add that would serve the kingdom of God. Something I can cut out of my life in order that it be given to Him. Something that distracts me, that I enjoy, that I really don't need. This is losing your life. Part of losing your life for Christ. Any, anything that you give your life to is fruitless in the end if it wasn't for Jesus' sake, and for the Gospels. Any other sort of giving your life to stuff, whatever kind of stuff it is, toys and games and cars and... Brethren, it's, it's useless. Don't go down there. Hear Christ's words here now in the, in the second motivation in verse 36. For... What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So he's just drawing a logical conclusion from what he just said. If you're going to save your life in this world, well, the purpose is you're trying to get as much stuff in this world as you can. And it's like, look, he goes to the extreme right away. Even if you could gain the whole world, which is impossible, Brethren, nobody can do that. Nonetheless, people still try. But, but you know what's funny? As I probably would commend them for their efforts in trying to gain the whole world, and th they recognize, hey, I'm in this world. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna go after it. N nothing's gonna hold me back. But think of the billions of people, and and perhaps some of you here today who trade their souls, literally, will trade your soul for far less than the whole world. Far less. I mean, the scraps of metal for cars with wheels on them. People literally will work years and years and years to get a specific color and make and model of a car that will just break down. And a house, brethren, you work and work and work and strive and strive for your dream home for it to just be taken from you in the end anyways. Some people even worse. It's like people trade their lives for iPhone apps and games and social media. It just takes up the whole of who they are. Their whole identity is wrapped up in this farm game on your iPhone. I mean, I have a, I know a lady like this. She's not a Christian, obviously, but all she does is she's addicted to her iPhone app game. And it really is sad. She's like 70 and just, she's wrapped up in this and she talks to me about it every time I see her. And, but brother, this is a reality in which so many can so easily get trapped and sucked into. It, it just goes to show how easily satisfied we are. 
we are so easily amused with such fleeting pleasures. Things that Christ is looking at. And he's like, listen, the, the whole world, the whole world can be yours. Even that should not be attractive to you. If you have to trade your soul. And we instinctively know this, brethren. We know our soul is the most valuable thing. So if we have to even, even look at this from a worldly perspective, if I could offer you, if I could make you a deal that said, listen, the whole world, every single thing in it, every car, every house, every piece of land, every amusement park, every restaurant, every airplane, it's yours. And you can enjoy it as much as you want for a week. After that, you die. Who would take that deal? Who would take that deal? You don't even have, you don't even have time to enjoy the stuff. And this is Jesus' point. But if I could make you a deal that was like, listen, for a week, lose everything. Just have nothing. Not a single possession, whatever it may be. And after that, the whole world is yours. Everything is yours. Who would not take that deal? And here Jesus is holding out this for us to get us to understand eternity is in the balance. And we know, brethren, those that are in Christ, though you've lost everything, the whole world is yours. You have such an inheritance that's not worth comparing to what you lose here for Christ's sake. And then he's just driving his point home in verse 37 with this next four. For what can you give in return for your soul? Brethren, even if you could gain the whole world, trading it for your soul is just not an option. It's just not an option. You cannot buy back your soul once you've once you've tried to save it in this world and have lost it for eternity, it's too late at that point. When you die, it's too late. So Jesus, you can't have both, brethren. He's calling us to self-denial, to cross-bearing, to following Him because the two are set uh, opposed to each other. You can't have both. You cannot serve two masters as Jesus was saying. Whatever it is you want to serve other than Christ, you can't do it. It just does not work that way with the Lord. You have your opportunity now to follow Christ, to deny yourself, to pick up your cross, to lose your life in this world that you might gain it in the next. And He's pleading with us, brethren, to do it. And the last motivation, verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words. Well, then I have more than I have time to say. But Jesus, think about this first. Jesus and his words are one. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words. He's one with His words. You can't separate Jesus from His word. So don't just 
look at this as I have to identify myself with Christ. You have to identify yourself with everything the scriptures say. What does it mean to be ashamed, brethren? Uh, embarrassed, maybe? You're embarrassed in front of others to name the name of Christ or to be associated. You're afraid out of fear to be associated with Christ and his word. And I'm going to ask you a question. Is there anyone in your life whom you interact with on a somewhat regular basis, perhaps in your workplace, extended family, neighbors, anyone that you can think of who does not know that you're a Christian? And just ask yourself, why? Why? Is it that perhaps you're ashamed to be named? You're afraid to look foolish with the higher-ups at work? You don't want them to think like, this guy's a Jesus freak and a Bible thumper. This person's judgment. You don't want to be looked at as judgmental? I mean, God forbid, brethren, judgmental. Out of touch with reality, some will think. So, and this happens in practical ways. I mean, you're, you're, this has happened to me several times. Having a conversation with a friend or a colleague at work or a client, and conversation comes up about paying your taxes, something like this. And instead of saying the real reason I pay my taxes, we say something like, well, I just want to obey the rules. Just want to obey the rules. Instead of a perfect opportunity to glorify Christ, to be named the name of Christ, and to witness and say, my Lord tells me to pay my taxes and that the government is due their taxes. It's all that, I mean, right? You know Jesus' story. Show me the denarius. Caesar's face is on it. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's, brethren. But give to God what's God's. Or you're asked, why, why do you homeschool your children? Oh, the school systems that are just, you know, ah. But is that the real reason? Or are we trying to influence our kids for Christ? Again, instead of Looking at things like, I don't want to be thought of as weird or less than. We look at things as an opportunity to witness. To say, I, I want to name Christ at this point. This is a perfect chance to at least plant a seed. You don't have to preach at them. You just tell them the truth. You just tell them the truth. But we know this. Those who follow Christ will be hated in this world. They will be hated. There's, again, guaranteed, sure promise of Christ. If you deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me, oh yeah, by the way, the world is going to hate you for it. You're going to be mocked and ridiculed. And we know because Christ himself was hated. Again, look at the example of Christ who, who went before us as the leader, as our example, as our head, to show us the way. And he was faithful at every point, and he's able to help those who come to him because he's already 
been successful at it. So there is plenty grace to be found with Christ to live this kind of life, brethren. Don't be ashamed of Jesus by doing so, and this is what makes it so bad, brethren, so bad, is that by seeking, by being ashamed of Jesus, we're seeking the approval of the world. And look at what Jesus, how he characterizes the world, brethren. In this, whoever's ashamed of me and of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation. And that definitely describes our current generation. Jesus characterizes the ones of whom we shrink back from. We, we're ashamed to look a certain way because of him as adulterous. These are people who have turned their back on the God whom we love and the God who loves us and them. God created them for glory and they've turned their back on God. This is really describing the spiritual condition of our generation that hates God. And it's from such people that we're afraid to look a certain way because of Christ. You got these people seeking after Satan, literally doing the will of Satan in this world. And we serve God on the other hand. We should never be ashamed to follow Christ in front of these people. In fact, again, the opportunity to witness to such people. I think about 1 Timothy 6 where we, we correct our opponents with gentleness, brethren. Why? With, ge with gentleness, with a sort of pleading. Because they may perhaps, God may perhaps grant them repentance and they would be freed from the bondage of Satan. People are literally in bondage to Satan. Do not be ashamed of the one who can free them. Let alone promises you eternal life. And again, the call, the strong call, a warning, but it's also mixed with a wonderful motivation. And this will finish us out, brethren. That once we have denied ourselves, taken up our cross and followed Jesus, He is coming back. And He is coming back to this world in glory with holy angels. He's bringing in the end of the world. The eschatological events of the second coming of Christ to say, I'm coming back in glory. And if you're ashamed of this sinful and adulterous world, well, in my glory, I will be ashamed of you. But the flip side of this is if you're not ashamed in this world, Christ is not going to be ashamed of you. He's going to look on you with such joy and satisfaction, with open arms, brethren, and glory to welcome you into His kingdom. And we have to have this, these eternal eyes that are always focused 
And in fact, the scriptures call us to this sort of eternal aspect as a means to persevere all the time. Listen to this, 1 John 2.28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. You see the flip side. Christ comes, and we want to have great confidence on that day. And we have great confidence knowing that we followed Christ, knowing we've lost our life for Christ. 1 Peter 1.3 Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's where you ought to think. It's where your mind ought to be. In a trying circumstance, glory is coming. That's where you ought to go. It's worth it, brother, and it will be worth it in the end. So let us, let us consider Christ to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, knowing that, brethren, He's done that for us. And listen, if you have no desire to save your soul after this, brethren, I just, I plead with you, I urge you, if there be anything in you, remember the first step to faith. You must deny all hope of saving yourself. you got to see the futility of this world and what it has to offer. It's so passing. Don't be caught up in pleasures that are going to choke you in the end. Put your faith into Jesus Christ. See the one who took up his cross in your place. The one who lived his life in such self-denial so that you might have a chance to dwell with him in eternity. You put your faith in him. You repent from your sins and the Lord will indeed save you. And he guarantees eternal life to those who believe in Christ. And then press on, brothers and sisters, in a life of denial and of loss, because the reward at the end is unspeakable. Well, let's pray. Holy Father, you really are such a good and merciful God to work in such a way for sinners. Lord, I I feel in one sense as I haven't even done it justice, Lord. But I pray that I pray that we would take these seriously, take this call seriously, take these commands seriously, and live our lives, Lord, pouring it out for you as you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.